Well, let's pray once again together. Father, we thank you for this time tonight to be together. Once again, open your word as your people. We trust what you say. We know that it is authoritative and we know that it is sufficient for every need. We know that most of all, it will tell us the truth about ourselves and our relationship to you and where real life can be found in Jesus Christ alone. So we thank you for helping us to understand, opening our minds and giving us an understanding of what you say, that we might know you better, that we might serve you more, that we might love our Savior Jesus Christ in ways which show in our life that we love him. And so, Lord, tonight as we look at your word, may you accomplish these things in our hearts. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles and open them to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. As we began some time ago in our study of this section, we now know that beginning in chapter 18 and continuing through here in chapter 19, in, in showing us that Jesus is the Christ and showing us that He is the living Son of God so that we might believe in Him and have life in His name, which is the purpose of this book, the Apostle John, in doing that, is showing us the trial of Jesus Christ. And it began in earnest with His arrest in the garden, and it will climax with His crucifixion beginning in chapter 19 and verse 16. And so as we begin our time tonight in chapter 19, we have to understand that for all intents and purposes, the trial of Jesus Christ has ended. The trial of Jesus Christ is over. It ended in a legal way with Pilate, the proconsul of Judea at the time, his pronouncement of the innocence of Jesus back in chapter 18 and verse 38. When he said this, he went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in Jesus Christ. That was the official end, really, of the trial of Jesus Christ. He had been brought up on trumped-up charges with the Jewish leaders, and now they brought him to the Roman leader. And the Roman leader said, I find no guilt in him. So that essentially is the end of the legal proceedings concerning Jesus Christ. And Jesus should have been set free. At least that's what Satan would have wanted. Satan would have wanted Jesus to go free. Because for Jesus to go free, for Jesus to never be crucified, would have been the ultimate in circumventing the ultimate plan of God to save sinners like you and me. For Jesus not to go to the cross... But God would not be thwarted. And we see that here in every attempt by Pilate in the verses that we're going to look at for Jesus to be set free. Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man, at least according to the charges that were brought before him. And in every other way, he was an innocent man. But since the Jewish rulers wanted Jesus crucified, Pilate, the other gospel writers tell us, first he sent Jesus to Herod. 
Herod was the proconsul or the governor, if you will, of the Galilean region, northern Israel as we know it today. And so Pilate sends Jesus there because Jesus is from Nazareth in Galilee. And Pilate has this grand hope that Herod would at least remove from him the, the, the sting of having to deal with this by way of responsibility. But as we know, his attempt to send even Jesus to Herod and get what he wanted from Herod failed. And then secondly, Pilate tries to appease the crowd. He tries to appease them by suggesting an exchange for Jesus. The whole reality of the custom that during the time of the Passover, those who were part of the Jewish nation would get someone released out of prison based upon the idea of the Passover. And Pilate tries to appease the crowd. And so he chooses the most notorious criminal in Roman custody at the time. He chooses Barabbas. Barabbas was a, for all intents and purposes, was a terrorist. And Pilate chooses him knowing that the crowd, hoping at least that the crowd would say, we don't want Barabbas. There's no way we want Barabbas with us. We'll take Jesus instead, thinking that they would never want a man that was a terrorist among them. But of course, we know that failed. And so then thirdly, as a last-ditch effort to both himself and of his own guilt to rid himself of the reality of the guilt before Jesus and the perversion of justice that was taking place amongst the Jews, Pilate has Jesus severely beaten, hoping that the crowd will see his beaten body and some sense of human pity pity will well up in their collective conscience as a group and somehow Jesus will be set free. But at every level... Pilate gets nothing but failure. Herod doesn't give him what he's looking for. The crowd doesn't acknowledge that they want Jesus instead of Barabbas. And the crowd doesn't give him what he's looking for. And then he has Jesus beaten. And it doesn't conjure up any sense of pity in the crowd. At every level, we not only see the depth of human depravity on display... The depth to which sin will go in order to appease its own guilty conscience. How sin sick the human heart truly is. But even more importantly, we also see the sovereign plan of God in action. Never to be thwarted by the efforts of sin and the efforts of Satan himself. Notice... As I read for us verses 1 to 5, chapter 19. John says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man. Behold the man. 
Sometime earlier in Jesus' ministry, while he was in the north in Galilee, you may remember the incident when Jesus Christ was in the boat with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm came up, and the forces and the winds were strong, and Jesus was in the boat sleeping, and they were fearing for their lives. And out of fear, they go and wake up Jesus Christ, and they wake Him, and He not only rebukes them for their lack of faith, but He calms the wind and the sea. And the men say this, Mark 4.41 tells us, they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey Him? They were frightened as the wind and the waves were coming upon the boat. And when Jesus stilled the wind and the waves, they were even more frightened. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Who is this person? What manner of man is this? Well, as I read those verses in John chapter 19, verses 1 to 5, just a few moments ago, we are confronted with that same question. We are confronted with the question in our minds as we watch what is happening with Jesus through Pilate and the Roman soldiers. We are confronted with this question, who is this man? Here is the one who, though he is beaten severely and unjustly, here is the one who stands silent. Here is the one who is in dignified solitude so that at the words of Pilate, as they are recorded here by John for us, behold the man, you and I ought to sit here with stunned reaction. Behold the man. We hear the words... We look at the words on the page and there's no other conclusion that we can come to other than since the beginning of time there has never been anyone like Jesus. Since the very beginning of creation itself there has never been anyone like Jesus. And I want us to notice as we think about that notice Jesus as he stands before Pilate. Notice who he is. First of all, Jesus is the innocent man who stands before Pilate. There was no crime that had ever been proven against Christ ever. No crime he ever committed in all of his life. And not only that, he had been even pronounced by Pilate as innocent no less than three times. In verse 38 of chapter 18, we already heard Pilate pronounces Jesus an innocent man. I find no guilt in him. He says it again here in verse 4, I find no guilt in him. He has found it, he has said it before when he was interacting with the Jews. What has he done wrong? He's an innocent man. In fact, his innocence was the final factual verdict of every person who ever dealt with Jesus when he walked on the face of the earth. You say, what do you mean? 
Well, take, for example, Judas. You remember the beginning of the... When this all began, Judas was the one who began the process of this arrest of Jesus Christ, this trial of Jesus Christ. Judas was the insider, part of the group of Jesus' followers, the one who had betrayed his own Lord into the hands of those bent on the removal of Jesus. Judas is the one who none of us would dare name our child after today. And yet, Matthew 27 and verse 4, Matthew records for us the confession of Judas about Jesus. Here's what it says. Beginning in verse 3, Then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Even Judas declared Jesus Christ innocent. And let us not forget Pilate's wife, Claudia, who we spoke about last time we were here, in sending him a message as he was in the midst of the trial of Jesus Christ, saying, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Even Claudia, who had never met Jesus at all, who in a dream heard from and about Jesus Christ, said he was a righteous man. No righteous man was ever guilty of a crime. And then, of course, Pilate himself declared the innocence of Jesus. We saw that already in verse 38. I find no guilt in him. We see it in 19.4. I find no guilt in him. We didn't look at it in detail because John doesn't record the words, but the other Gospels record the words when Herod saw Jesus. Herod, too, found no guilt in Jesus. Luke 23, verse 15. He has nothing to deserve death, Herod said. And if that's not enough, even those who were dying with Christ when he's crucified, the two thieves on the side of him, even one of the thieves said of Jesus to the other thief, we are punished justly, we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. This is the verdict of everybody who looks at Jesus. When they contemplate Jesus Christ and who he really is, this is the only verdict they can come to when they look at the man. Even though Jesus was crucified, the centurion who stood there and watched him be crucified, and the crowd that heard and felt the earthquake when Jesus Christ gave up his breath in death, even they acknowledged that this was the Son of God, the innocent one. And so the first thing we see about Jesus Christ as he stands before Pilate is the innocent one. Jesus Christ is the one who, in whom there is no guilt. I find no guilt in this man. I'm bringing him out to you, but you need to know I find no guilt in him. He is the innocent one. But also, Jesus standing for Pilate. Secondly, this is Jesus committingly unflinching as he stands before Pilate. This is shocking to me. Jesus is committingly unflinching as he stands before Pilate. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean that here is Jesus beaten unmercifully. And yet nothing about him compromises. 
You notice verse 1 says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Scourged him. I've never seen a scourging. Some years ago, Hollywood tried to paint it in motion picture. I remember walking out of that movie, all I could say was that was heavy. It was a burden to watch that, even in Hollywood fashion. But even that attempt pales in comparison to a real scourging as the Romans carried it out. Under the Roman rule, those who were being scourged would be stripped of any clothing that they might be wearing as protection, only to expose their bare skin. They would then be tied to some kind of post in which their back would be exposed or the the whole torso of their body in some way would be exposed to the moment in which they would be inflicting the pain upon them. So their torso was fully exposed, the place where all of your vital organs exist. And the instrument for a scourging would be a weapon made of several long pieces of leather. The long pieces of leather were strung out at different lengths, joined together at a handle, maybe a wooden handle of some type. And at the end of those pieces of leather would be pieces of metal and pieces of wood and shards of bone and other kinds of sharp objects at the end of those small pieces of leather. Anything sharp. So that when it would contact the flesh as the executioner would be throwing the scourge at the backside of the person, those leather pieces would hit the flesh and wrap around even to the underside of the flesh and it would penetrate deep into the flesh, only to be once again when pulled away, ripping the flesh apart from the person who was being scourged. Certainly there would be gaping wounds left upon the person. So much so that blood would be profusely flowing from the body. The adrenaline in the person would be so exercised, their breathing would become very heavy. Normally, over the course of a beating and a scourging, the person would go unconscious from not just the pain of it all, but the blows to the body. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus remained conscious throughout the entire process. He bore that without compromise. It was only after this severe beating that Jesus was led out before the people and Pilate said, Behold the man. Jesus had been verbally beaten. He had been physically beaten. In fact, right here in John's Gospel, it says the soldiers wove a crown of thorns, put it on his head, arraigned him in a purple robe. They began to come to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they gave him blows to the face. Verbally beaten, physically beaten, mocked, hit in the face as they mocked him. And yet Jesus never compromised. He never uttered one hateful word. Pilate must have been shocked. Pilate must have been shocked. Pilate was a soldier. Pilate was a Roman soldier. He knew what it meant to be brave in battle. He knew what it meant to stand strong in the midst of some enemy that is hurling upon you all kinds of abuse. 
He knew what it would take for a man to stand under that. And most men could never, if not all men, could never stand under that. But here is Jesus. He knew the uncompromising bravery that it would take. This must have shocked him to the core. So Pilate brings Jesus out in hopes, in hopes that maybe, maybe there would be some pity for Jesus. And he even repeats again, I find no guilt in him. And Jesus says, behold, or Pilate says, behold the man in verse 5. Behold the man. It's interesting to note, just as a side note, the crown of thorns that were on Jesus' head. Do you remember why there are thorns on the earth? The thorns are on the earth simply because of the fall. Remember back in the fall in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God cursed the ground and said, from the ground there you will toil, you will have to work hard to, to cultivate from the ground the very things that will sustain your life and weeds will come up and thorn bushes and all these kinds of things that go against that. Now here are the very thorns that Jesus Christ in Himself was there and He cursed the ground and the thorns are from the ground and now they've woven them into a crown to hold on His head. Jesus is wearing the very picture of our sinfulness. Behold the man. That phrase could also be translated, look at this poor soul. Look at this poor soul. These are words of pity. Words of pity. One commentator, William Barclay, spoke of it this way. He said, It must have been Pilate's first intention to awaken the pity of the Jews. Look! Look at this poor, bruised, bleeding creature! Look at his wretchedness! Can you possibly wish to hound a creature like this to an utterly unnecessary death? In light of it all, Jesus will not compromise. Why? Verse 37 of the previous chapter. When Jesus answered Pilate, he said, For this I have been born, and for this have I come into the world. What? To bear witness to the truth. For this I had come into the world. This is why I have been born into the world. So, behold the man. Behold the innocent man. Behold the uncompromising one. And thirdly, behold the majestic one. Behold the majestic one. I think we can see that also here. The, ma the majesty of Jesus Christ. In other words, behold not just the man, but behold the king. Behold the King of kings. Behold the Lord of glory. Not a king that the soldiers were making him out to be. Not the mocked king that they were trying to set upon him. But the actual king that he is. Behold the king. He is the King of kings. He is the king whose grace and mercy and strength and power and saving sacrificial love is seen throughout this moment of humiliation. This is Jesus, the King. Yes, Jesus was a great man. But Jesus is God. And He proved that in many, many ways. 
And the only one who would do this, in fact, the only one who could do this, is God. The only one who could stand there, the only one who could endure it, the only one who could do it uncompromisingly, the only one who, even though he was innocent, stood there and said nothing, the only one who could do this is the majestic one, God in the flesh. So Pilate brings Jesus out, and now Jesus is before the crowd. As we said earlier, it seems as if the scourging happened because Pilate wanted to enlist some sense of pity from the crowd. And we know that that is what Pilate expected. He expected some kind of show of pity from the crowd, but none of that would happen. None of that would be what the crowd was going to show Jesus. They wanted him gone. And through the sin-sick heart of humanity rose another round of hatred against Jesus Christ. Why? Why? We sit here tonight, we read these words, we look at what happened, we think about the pain, the struggle, the the reality of it all. Here is an innocent person being beaten beyond recognition, as Isaiah 53 tells us. Why would this crowd be so incensed at Jesus? Why would they be so incensed at him that not a single person would have pity upon him? Some people try to say that those who were there that day saw in Jesus all that they had done. That the human heart, being what it is, and the psychology of the human makeup and its fallenness, sees somebody who's going through all that, sees what human have done to such a person, knowing all the guilt that's in their hearts, even though they would not admit it, even though they would say they were guilty of nothing. And so in order to appease their own guilt and their own conscience and where it's taking them, they just wash it all aside by getting rid of him. Get it out of the way quickly. Move it aside so I don't have to look at it anymore because all it does is say something about me. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's true. They surely are in their sin-sick heart. They sure have a desire to appease and to ease its guilt in any way possible. But I think there's a bigger reason here. I think there's a bigger reason that they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and it's this. Because God the Father would have no earthly freedom for His Son. God the Father would not allow His Son to have earthly freedom. His Son needed to die so that you and I might have a way to live. Oh, sure, Satan would have loved it if Jesus had gotten off. Satan would have loved it if Jesus had just been let go. The soldier said, okay, you're free to go. He would have walked out the side off the stage and everything would have been all fine and dandy if he had been set free. Avoid the cross. Avoid the way of salvation. Yes, God's plan avoided. God's plan thwarted. Nothing would have made Satan more happy. He tried to do it in numerous ways already. Even when Jesus began his own ministry, Satan was there trying to tempt him to turn his back on the plan of his father. 
but God wouldn't allow it. Jesus was uncompromising because he always did what the Father asked. This is what amazes me when we read these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking about what we have been called to as Christians, how we are to live as Christians, what life is to be like for us as Christians. Peter says in chapter 2, I urge you as aliens and strangers, verse 11, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the nations, among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every human institution doesn't matter if it's a king in authority or a governor sent by him to punish an evildoer and to praise those who do right. doesn't matter for such is the will of God that you by doing right might silence the ignorance of foolish men. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants be submissive to your masters with all respect for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under the sorrows when suffering unjustly. And he says in verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Standing before Pilate, he committed no sin. He was innocent, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He wasn't a liar. He was exactly who he was from beginning to end. There was no compromise. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Jesus Christ being spat on, being mocked by the soldiers, standing there before them as they revile Him in word and in action. He says nothing. He does nothing. He utters no threats. He reviles no one. Why? Because He was entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed you see why was Jesus Christ uncompromising as the innocent one unjustly beaten and finally crucified on the cross simply because Jesus Christ kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously It wasn't because he was a brave man as we define braveness. It wasn't because in some kind of humanistic way he was stronger than someone else. That he was just some specimen of humanity that could endure all of that without any compromise. No, no. No, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why he did it. You see, beloved, don't simply behold the man. Behold the master. Behold the king. Behold the innocent, righteous, uncompromising one. 
I fear today as a pastor that many just see the man. Many just see the man. Just as the crowd standing before Pilate looked at Jesus. They look at the man and they respond the same way that the crowd responded here. They hate Jesus. In their hearts, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They hope that they could get rid of Jesus. Why? Because for them, He's not worth their attention. Just get rid of Jesus. He's not worth my time. He's just a man. There's got to be somebody better. You know the sad part is? The sad part that that's even in the church. Sometimes in churches and Christian colleges and seminaries, Jesus today is just being set aside. Doesn't deserve the attention. He's being ignored. At every level, they're challenging the truth concerning Him, turning from that truth that He gave us. It's not worth it. And to us... And to them, we have to declare, Behold the Master. Behold the Master. Don't look away. Don't look away. You're not too busy. You're not too busy, so don't look away. You don't have too much going on in your life. Don't look away from Jesus. It would be a great tragedy for you as a person to gain the whole world and what? Lose your soul. It will be frightening in for you to think that you have Jesus because you attend this church. It's frightening if you think, well, I read my Bible, therefore I'm okay. I have Jesus or you do things that Christians do, you speak Christian words, and yet in the end you hear Jesus say to you, I never knew you. Sadly, many live like that. They're like the ten virgins that Jesus talked about who foolishly remained unprepared for the bridegroom's coming. And when he came, they were left out in the dark. The door closed. The day of grace was over. The invitation had been shut up. And they would not be let in. There's coming a day, beloved, when Christ will return and He will demand an accounting. That's the reality of it. So the real question is, for us, tonight, just as we scratch the surface of this text, the real question is, when the accounting is made... What is it that will be in our gain column? When Jesus comes to rectify the accounts, what's going to be in our gain column? Will you be prepared? See, the foolish virgins were unprepared. They were unprepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Each and every one of us has the opportunity to be prepared. This is why John put it here. This is why we're reading this. This is why we're studying this. This is why we are looking at Jesus. This is why Pilate brought it out. This is why John records it here. Behold the man. No, don't just behold the man. Behold the master. We have the opportunity to be prepared. We, if we will see in Jesus, not simply the man, but the master. 
Look to Him for salvation. Repent of your sin and embrace the Son. He endured it all so that you might not have to. Jesus' pain, Jesus' moment, Jesus' torment was for a moment. Yours will be for eternity if you do not embrace the Master. You have to believe. Faith. It's by faith. There are many who simply look at Jesus and see the man, and they turn from him seeing no need. Don't be one of those. Don't be one of those. Don't be like the crowd in verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day of grace. Now we see Christ offered as a sacrifice for sin. But there's another day coming. There's a day coming when we no longer will see him as we do now. There's a day coming when we will see him as he is now, king. King of glory, the one who judges the living and the dead, the Bible says. So how long is it going to be before we hear those words again? Behold. How long is it going to be? Here we are reading Pilate's words some 2,000 years in the past. Behold the man, and yet there's coming a day when we will hear these words again. Behold. But this time it will not be, Behold the man. This time it will be, Behold the Lord of glory. And He will be coming to condemn and judge, or He will be coming to receive. Which will it be for us? The answer depends on how you behold Him. How do you behold Him? You behold Him by faith, trusting in Him, entrusting yourself to the One who judges righteously because you know you're a sinner. You know that you need a Savior. You know that you're guilty before Him and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And so you behold the living One. You behold Jesus Christ, the King, the Lord of glory. And by faith in Him, you have life. You see him as he is. You see him as king. Or are you like the crowd? You just see him as a man. Guilty. No need for him. Push him aside. Get him out of the way. Remove him as quickly as possible because I have other things I need to do. I think it's worthy to be said. Just as we end, John said it. I'll say it again. I've said it time and time again. I wrote this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you might have life in His name. That's why John put it here. So that we wouldn't just simply behold the man, but that we would behold the Lord of glory. Beholding Jesus changes everything. Changes everything. Well, we just scratch the surface. We'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for our time tonight. Time has gone by so fast, so quick. Just thinking about the reality 
of our Savior and what he endured on behalf of sinners like us so that we as sinners would be saved by him. Undeserved as we are, trophies of your grace and mercy, we stand here looking to Jesus Christ, our only hope. We know that we have life in his name if we believe. We know that when we turn from our sin, acknowledge our sin before him, and embrace him as our Savior, that he gives us eternal life. And that our perspective on this life is totally changed. We are no longer dead spiritually, but we are alive. The flesh may be passing away, but our spirit will live and endure forever with Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful. We long for that day. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus that way. That the kids who grew up in the families of people in this church, moms and dads who share these things with their children, the children would believe. That it wouldn't just be intellectual words, but they would believe. That they would have genuine life in your name not be Pharisees wandering around saying they're Christians when in fact they're not saved at all Lord give us grace grant us mercy to take these words the things we've heard tonight the truth of this passage to proclaim it to others that they might know Christ Man is on a way to the grave. And there's no other hope for him than Jesus Christ alone. So Lord, we pray. We pray. We plead with you. That you would open eyes, open ears to hear. That they might turn to you and know Jesus Christ as their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.